0: Squeaky Clean listeners, welcome to the 92nd episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. Today, we're talking about a topic that's been front and center here in the Carolinas over the past six months or so, especially stemming back to the widespread outages experienced around Christmas Eve associated with winter storm Elliott, and that is market reform. When experiencing an outage of that scope and scale, it leads to some natural questions like, how did this happen? And is our current utility and the structure of the market lending itself to the most reliable and cost-effective solution available? These questions led to the introduction of a bill during this long legislative session designed to answer those exact questions by authorizing a study to look at whether other market options, aside from our current vertically integrated regulated monopoly, would be more advantageous to ratepayers across the state. And all of this comes just after South Carolina released the results of their own study, demonstrating that the state could potentially save hundreds of millions of dollars by moving to a structure like an RTO, or Regional Transmission Organization, and for the uninitiated, an RTO is an independent, membership-based, nonprofit bulk electric power system operator that ensures reliability and optimizes supply and demand bids for wholesale electric power. This is a much different arrangement than we currently have throughout a large portion of North Carolina, where one entity controls generation, transmission, and distribution. So in today's episode, we're going to jump into the potential benefits of a market structure like an RTO, why states in the Southeast are currently considering them, and the likelihood of seeing any new structure moving forward. With that, let's jump right into today's episode.
1: Hey! Cream. Energy. <laughs> Clean.
0: Our first guest is the Executive Director for Carolina's Clean Energy Business Alliance. CCBA is an association of independent power producers, suppliers, and customers committed to expanding private sector market access in the Carolinas vertically integrated utility environment. In this role, our guest manages the CCBA advocacy and legal teams and all of the policy and regulatory work in North and South Carolina. Our guest previously worked for the Chambers for Innovation and in Clean Energy and at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and approaches the clean energy industry with a business lens. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Chris Carmody, Executive Director of CCBA to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Chris, welcome to the pod.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Our next guest is a manager on the Market and Policy Innovation Team at Clean Energy Buyers Association, (CEBA), a business trade association that activates a community of energy customers and partners to deploy market and policy solutions for a carbon-free energy system. SEBA's more than 370 members represent more than $7 trillion in annual revenues and 14 million employees and includes institutional energy customers of every type and size. At SEBA, our guest focuses on improving access to clean energy for large customers in the southeastern United States to help drive the energy transition. Prior to Ciba, our guest was a senior public utilities regulatory analyst at the California Public Utilities Commission and worked on policies for interconnection, utilities climate adaptation, and energy efficiency programs. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Reese Rogers, Manager of Market and Policy Innovation at the Clean Energy Buyers Association. Reese, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. All right. So jumping right into the questions, Chris, can you give us the current state of the utility market in North Carolina and how it's currently regulated?
1: Sure. So the current state of uh, the utility uh, market, quote unquote, in North Carolina is the same as it's been for about 100 years. And that is that um, Duke Energy um, has two government regulated uh, monopolies and monopsonies. So it's not only the, uh, the only seller uh, of electricity, but it's the only buyer, except for a sliver of the state represented by Dominion, uh, which is in PJM. And, and essentially, um, if you're a government regulated monopoly, which is very common in the South, you get sort of a guaranteed rate of return from guaranteed by the government, in this case regulators, which is about twice the uh, average of the stock market over the last 50 years.
0: I've never heard the term monopsony. Can you uh, expound upon that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, what that means is, uh, so, I mean, obviously we can only get by our energy from Duke unless we're in a co-op or on the East Coast uh, of North Carolina where Dominion is. But the other thing is we can only sell energy to Duke too. So if you're an independent power producer or you have a solar array on your home, it's duke and only duke that is empowered to purchase from you and so they have a great deal of monopoly power there too in setting prices and so that means there's no offtake basically there's no offtake for people who have extra energy they can't go anywhere else if duke doesn't feel like buying from somebody you know they kind of don't have to especially you know with uh, perpa going away so it's a really, there's no competition really whatsoever within the Duke framework.
0: So you've highlighted some of the real challenges that that we're facing here in the North Carolina market and the Southeastern market. And, and so part of the reason for us having this conversation right here right now is that market reform has been a, a topic really bubbling up over the past couple of years. So why is that the case? Why now? Why why is this conversation coming up at this moment in time? And you can, can you provide some regional background and context as to what's going on?
1: Sure, so regionally what's going on is that the Southeast is lagging badly behind the rest of the country. And if you look particularly uh, to the Midwest and the West, you see RTOs and ISOs, which are basically wholesale competitive markets that are doing three things. They're increasing reliability because there's a bigger footprint of um, bigger footprint of energy to draw on. They are reducing carbon much more rapidly than a centrally planned system like the Southeast has. And they're reducing prices because when you have more than one reasonable bid to provide something, automatically that's a check on um, sort of uh, excess profit. So um, in North Carolina in particular, I think what's going on, or the both the Carolinas, basically, you have two things that people are upset about. They're increasingly upset uh, and untrusting about reliability, especially following the Duke Christmas Week blackouts, where 500,000 North Carolinians lost power, uh, some for a couple hours, some for a few days, and they are upset about prices and and you know, Duke frequently would say, well, you know, we, we're sort of average or we're slightly below average. But now Duke is, uh, has been seeking a, a 16% rate increase over three years. And I think uh, residents and and businesses alike are pretty unhappy about it.
0: So at a high level, uh, Reese, we'll start with you on this. What what are some of the the potential benefits of an alternative market structure from North Carolina? We've outlined some of the the drawbacks that we've been experiencing here recently over the past couple of years, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, what are some of the benefits that we could see by looking at alternative structures like an RTO, for example?
2: Sure, yeah, um, you know, an RTO really offers, I think, the full suite of benefits, like Chris mentioned, for an alternative market structure, and at a high level. You know, those more competitive market structures really drive innovation economic benefits for ratepayers. And as Chris noted, they improve grid reliability and resilience. And, you know, I think Chris noted one of the things that people are upset about ratepayers, businesses, and residents in North Carolina is, is the increasing costs of, of their energy. And so I just wanted to highlight, you know, the cost savings element is is often a top line benefit that's noted in the studies that come out examining these alternative market structures. And just to note a few, there has been a Brattle Group analysis that estimated market reforms would save North Carolina consumers up to $600 million per year. Um, At a regional level, there was a 2020 study by Vibrant Clean Energy and Energy Innovation that found with a regional transmission organization in the Southeast region as a whole, uh, we could save... $384 Three hundred eighty-four billion dollars by 2040 create over two hundred thousand full-time jobs and reduce emissions by over a third. And so that really, I think, highlights you know those cost savings benefits, but the the benefits of these market structures really extend beyond just the cost savings. Chris mentioned the the reliability and resilience benefits as well. And those really come from that larger footprint, encompassing a lo- larger load and resource diversity that grid operators can draw on to maintain reliability. And that's something you know that we saw a failure of in in the blackouts, the Christmas Eve blackouts in North Carolina last year. We saw the neighboring market structures actually perform better, maintain you know power, keep their lights on by drawing on the benefits of those larger footprints that they had.
0: Well, and and so you know, Reese, to, to kind of follow down that path a little bit, given that your your organization represents a number of of large customers, as we highlighted during the introduction, you know, why are they interested in the the topic of of market reform?
2: Yeah, SEBA is a national business trade association. We represent um, over four hundred members. Uh, most of them are energy customers, um, including companies that buy a large amount of of energy in North Carolina. And we're concerned about those limited options that a monopoly monopsony market structure offers for ensuring grid reliability and market access to clean energy our energy customer members have clean energy and carbon reduction goals and need to achieve those goals by procuring clean energy Uh, so limited options don't really work for them uh, in that respect corporate industrial and institutional energy customers are making these business decisions based on the availability of clean, reliable electricity, you know, and those business decisions extend to where they're siting their operations and facilities. Uh, So opening the energy market in North Carolina to more competition really translates to more options to meet those customer preferences and in turn actually supports economic development for the state as a whole. So it's not just a, you know, narrow business benefit, it it's really something that'll extend to all ratepayers in North Carolina and the state.
0: You highlighted, right, the these large customers having a limited number of options right now to meet their clean energy goals. Where are they currently going to to meet those goals? And is North Carolina missing out on any business opportunities or economic development opportunities as a state because of limited options available to customers?
2: Yeah, like Chris noted, the only real option to to procure a clean energy in the state is going through the utilities. And so I think one thing that some folks may not realize is that if the utility is not offering what you need as a business, then then you really don't have other options in North Carolina. You know, you there's there aren't there are some complicated works in certain specific cases structures like an avoided costs kind of perpa deal that may be a little bit too complicated to get into on on this podcast but you know the, the options are very limited and when a business looks at that looking to cite a new facility if they have strong clean energy goals or they're thinking about clean energy goals and and those goals you know uh, result in obligations that the company has to fulfill they certainly are you know considering well if that market isn't going to work for me from an energy point of view i may cite somewhere else and that's something you know that is happening in north carolina and other southeastern states where where businesses are making decisions that affect the economic prospects for a state that affect people's jobs based on the availability of clean reliable electricity
1: yeah if i could add some color to that i think that's a, a really good description um, we get calls monthly from people who are trying to recruit businesses to North Carolina, and the question they ask is, "Hey, this company wants to locate here, wants to expand here, but they don't understand, you know, if they can get the clean energy they want or not." And the answer is they can't. And so many of those companies go to places with competitive wholesale markets, and. You know, the difference, I I think, is that in a wholesale market as a company, you can get the energy that you want through a power purchase agreement in six to eight weeks. But here, you may not be able to do it at all. And it is structured in such a way that there's rent seeking by the utility if you get some of the few green source credits. So you have Toyota locating a big plant here, but Toyota has one special carve out that was taken uh, from a a pool, and, and that's about it, right? And so I think we don't always notice this in North Carolina because we have a lot of assets that draw companies, especially workforce, and so you see a ribbon cutting every week. But what we don't see is the companies that decide to vote with their feet and also the companies that have been based here that are moving megawatt consumption out of the state to surrounding states because its uh, electricity is, is frequently their largest variable cost. And if it's expensive, they just go somewhere else. That's what they have to do as a business. Yeah, that's
0: a great point. And in terms of regional competition, always worried about potentially losing opportunities to our neighbors to the north who are in PJM interconnection, right? You've, you've seen uh, that market enabling uh, large clean energy deployments. Look at Northeastern North Carolina with the uh, onshore wind farm that we have up there that's powering Amazon and Data Center Alley that's up in Virginia as well, where customers have more choice in terms of uh, procuring generation. And, you know, you you highlighted this as well, Chris, the the Green Source Advantage program in North Carolina. You know, I think while while a good effort and attempt uh, has a lot of limitations, and, and we've seen that play out over the past couple of years, and it's basically the only product or option available to large corporate customers in, in North Carolina. So so broadly speaking, some of the, the counter arguments that we have heard against a structure like an RTO are concerns about reliability and costs. Given that costs and reliability are paramount considerations for large customers, is this an issue that you know, they've run into in other markets and are these concerns valid? So I'll start with Reese on this one. Sure.
2: You know, I think we've we've touched on some of the benefits that, that have come from, you know, these have been shown by these prospective studies, these forward-looking studies on cost savings in the Southeast, but we also see, uh, you know, retrospective studies of utilities that do join RTOs looking back on, you know, whether they've saved c- costs or not. And, and you know, those studies do show cost savings. Um, just as one example, you know, Entergy customers over a four-year period after Entergy, a multi-state utility with operations in Louisiana, Arkansas, and a couple of other states in that region, you know, they saved approximately $1.3 billion over four years through participation in the mid continent independent system operator which is an rto that operates in kind of the middle of the country so i, I think there's a lot of data to support both you know forecast for the southeast prospects of for cost savings for joining an rto and then for utilities and customers that have entered into an rto you know there's there's evidence there to support the cost savings claims and we've talked about it a little bit already but you know the limited sort of footprint of these more Balkanized areas in the southeast do have implications for reliability i mentioned the christmas eve blackouts where you know duke energy territory and some other southeastern non rto territories lost power whereas the neighboring rtos uh you know were able to maintain their systems uh keep the lights on for their their customers and you know a large Function of that was their ability to share power more easily um, to pull from a larger pool of generating resources that was more diverse. They had load diversity, which also contributes, you know, to a grid operator's ability to um, just draw on a variety of resources and tools to to maintain reliability. So, I think the the concerns about the RTO or the arguments that you know that that's somehow comparatively worse than this kind of monopoly vertically integrated structure, don't have a lot of evidence to back them up. You know, I think the the evidence actually points to the opposite. Um, you know, I will say that and I think, you know, sometimes in the Southeast we get into this, you know, finger pointing towards issues in neighboring RTOs. You know, one of the things in the Southeast is that, you know, we we have an opportunity to, to look at the RTOs that are exist and think through, you know, what's the best kind of market structure for us down here in North Carolina and the Southeast and design and implement, you know, a well thought out market structure, but, you know, we have that opportunity and we can think through that, what works best for us, but at a high level, you know, those, uh, more competitive market structures do offer the benefits that they, they say they do.
1: Yeah. I mean, Reese is absolutely right. And all you have to do is look at the numbers. Um, I would invite invite anybody listening to this podcast to Google Western EIM. Um, an EIM is a different kind of uh, competitive wholesale market. It's a bit more flexible and a bit more voluntary than an RTO. Uh, I don't know that an RTO is, is magic versus, you know, an EIM. I mean, as Reese said, you know, We probably need to figure out what's best for us but if you look at the western rto they are reporting on a monthly basis what they're saving customers what they're generating and what they're saving in terms of carbon reduction and they have a governance structure in which two utilities commissioners from each involved state are representing you know their state and their commission and governance decisions and that's all transparent. It's all uh, right there online instantly in black and white. And that is something that you just don't have in the Southeast at all. Um, you don't have transparency. And When you don't have transparency, you get $500 toilet seats. I'm looking at the, the, the Western EIM right now. Last year, they saved $739 million. So, you know, seven tenths of a, of a billion dollars um, for their residents. So it's really easy to to measure and to see what's going on outside the southeast. I think competition at any level gives more transparency. But I think if you've got a government regulated monopoly, you you don't want to let that go. That's something that you know people will have to pry <laughs> uh, fr- from your tight grip because it's a it's a license to mint money at a guaranteed rate of return, and utilities they uh, they're like the boy that cried wolf so they say well reliability and so you know they, they want to use that as an excuse to build more and more plants here when they could be for instance drawing on a plant that's in eastern north carolina you know in the market next door and and i think the cost is the, the most evident difference and all you have to look at do is look at any other region
0: yeah, one thing I think about—we're we're talking about some pretty significant numbers of savings for for you know regions that are in these sort of different sort of market structures. How do those savings translate down to the individual customer level? You know, I, I know we've seen concerns about, for example, looking at ERCOT right after the some of the blackouts that they experienced two years ago, and and customers having to to front some of the enormous costs after that. How do we ensure? ratepayer protection for low and moderate income consumers in particular and ensure that those savings that we're talking about translate down to the ratepayer level
1: so so i think this is one this is a really important point you make that is a virtue of wholesale competition so right now government monopoly utilities are in a position to sort of pit different customer classes against one another and to pit them against different types of generation because what, what they are charging people is not transparent. And wholesale competition basically lowers the, the broad pool of costs. You, you know what it is. You know what the savings are en masse. And that's not something that you know really for a lot of especially large customers where large customers are forced to sign a non-disclosure agreement um, so nobody really knows uh, what their, you know, wh- what their neighbor is paying. Now, the law says, I believe, that you're not allowed to play favorites. But when you have an NDA, you know, you don't really know, uh, again, wh- you know, whether utilities playing favorites or not. I will say that, you know, in uh, my home state of Ohio, uh, a few years ago in 2015, Duke agreed to, uh, without any admission of culpability, of course, an $80 million settlement with the state um, for playing favorites with uh, some businesses and trade groups over others. And so I think what wholesale competition does in particular is it gives you a large number, which, which you can see how the benefits are derived from that rather than having it kind of split up and saying, okay, well, we're going to do this for this class and this for this micro class, and we're going to do this economic development uh, bonus over here. And I think that's the virtue of competition at at lower levels too.
2: We've talked about how these organized wholesale markets can increase customer choice. One of the things that that does is it can lead to more innovative contracting structures. One of the things we've seen, you know, even amongst SIBA's energy customers businesses is that they're using those kind of more you know uh, that ability to innovate in in these more competitive markets on contracting structures to to build things like power purchase agreements that include equity considerations so equity ppas and you know really innovating and thinking through how do we make the clean energy transition work for communities uh how do we bring in sort of you know community benefits into these these energy contracts and transactions that we're making all of that sort of innovation is is enabled by being in this you know more open and transparent market it's a lot more difficult to create those kinds of creative solutions in a much more limited marketplace and so you know just going back to kind of the basic principle that opening the marketplace really fosters innovation uh that innovation it it doesn't necessarily mean oh there's there's new technologies or new generating technologies that come into the market it really supports you know innovation in terms of how the transition is actually happening in these communities, whether, you know, through transactions, through contracting structures, the ability to kind of bring in, you know, other other benefits into you know, spe- specific actions that these these energy customers and businesses are taking.
0: So if there are so many potential benefits of looking at an alternative market structure in the state, why are we seeing so much pushback on the idea? I mean, this isn't the first time in North Carolina, for example, and we'll talk a little bit more about kind of what's going on on the legislative side. But this legislative session isn't the first time that there's been a bill introduced in the state to study an alternative market structure. So why are we seeing so much pushback right now?
1: I mean, it's political heft. And that comes from, you know, a system where in some states, a utility is the, the largest, um, by far the largest political donor. Again, I'll I'll cite my home state of Ohio, where First Energy is an enormous political donor, and now the former Speaker of the House, the former Chair of the Utility Commission there, are going to federal prison for bribery uh, from First Energy uh, for a long time. But that there's their contribution levels, and then if you look at it, utilities also they have just more money than they know what to do with for other kinds of soft influence. So they're on every chamber of commerce board. They're on every organizational board. They give quote unquote grants. And these are things that, I mean, utilities really, uh, monopoly utilities sort of have the worst elements of both the private and the public sector. They've got the, the bureaucracy, I think, in the overhead of government but they have the profit motive of the private sector. And and you would not have a, another government agency doling out grants to different people and uh you know paying for all these memberships. And so that that combination is very tough and then if you scare people by saying, "Oh, well, you know, we're we're going to lose control of our uh of our power system here. We're you know, this is going to not be as reliable as the, the the 15 states next door who share power, it, it's very scary. And I think people are inclined to to listen to you. I, I think the other thing is, you know, Duke specifically, that their strategy is to get out of deregulated markets to the greatest degree possible. And they do function in some RTOs around the country, and there's no disaster there. <laughs> you know, people are saving money from that. But when you are a, a a company that makes, you know, 3 billion dollars last year and people could be saving a billion dollars in two of your states, North and South Carolina, that that's a, a threat to the bottom line and um that's why there's the, the pushback. It's it's a very nice profit margin that they have.
2: I think Chris uh summed it up pretty well. You know, it these vertically integrated utilities have a captive customer base right now. And so, yeah, I think that's for a business, that's a tough thing to give up. When you start talking about interjecting some competition into the the market, you know, that goes directly towards, you know, unlocking that captive customer base. And they don't want to let go of of what in their mind is a good thing, but isn't a good thing for for the rest of us.
0: You know, I think a lot of people will see the value and the benefits of the the regulated monopoly structure when it was first put into place, you know, over 100 years ago, right? It made a lot of sense at that point in time. But the day and age of of utilities has changed quite dramatically, especially as the proliferation of low-cost renewables has really taken effect across the country, and especially here in the Southeast, and as states, federal governments, et cetera, have implemented numerous emissions reduction targets, et cetera, and the, and the utility is standing in the way as a, a blocker to reaching those uh, current structures and targets. You know, one of my favorite sort of analogies out there is, look at any other sort of industry, telecoms, any other technology industry, and how it's transformed over the past, you know, even 10, 20 years, 40, 50 years ago, computers were the size of, of rooms, right? Uh, now, they're basically the size of a smartphone in your pocket look at the utility industry 100 years ago, compared to what it is now, it it really hasn't transformed or changed at all. And I think it really warrants us to think critically and strategically about what the market is really asking for and needs moving forward. And so, you know, even just starting the conversation about studying the benefits of an alternative market structure in North Carolina is an important first step, which leads me into my next question about what the current status of legislation is in North Carolina related to alternative market structures. So I'll start with Chris on this one.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the current status uh, of North, of legislation in North Carolina is that, um, you know, Duke is basically keeping the, the recently introduced legislation bottled up. The legislation, uh, I believe it's House Bill 503, it was introduced by uh, several Republican leaders and uh, it has co-sponsors uh, from both parties. It's the third time in the the last six years and the last three sessions that a study bill has been introduced. Um, And and the study is the biggest, the single biggest red line for the monopoly. I think there's a lot of interest. I think this year, this version um, was modeled very closely after the South Carolina law that passed uh, two and a half years ago and has led to this rattle uh, study that was commissioned by the legislature uh, as a result of their law. So I think there's a lot of interest um, in North Carolina, but I I think right now uh, the, the monopoly has the legislation bottled up.
0: So speaking of, South Carolina released the results of their own study just a few weeks back. What did that study end up saying about the South Carolina and North Carolina markets? And what do we anticipate the state of South Carolina doing with the results of that study moving forward?
1: Well, uh, let me take the second question first. I think it's hard to know what South Carolina uh, will do. And, and I think those um, the, the leaders in the legislature down there are going to take some time, as I understand it, the summer to figure that out. Um, That's, I think, what was said during the presentation that Brattle made recently. I think they're going to go through the study, which has many, many recommendations about market reform besides joining an RTO. And it basically spells out uh, a number of steps, including competitive procurement and especially all-source competitive procurement, coal securitization, um, different approaches to planning, lots of things that that Brattle says could be saving South Carolina ratepayers money soon. That don't don't entail joining an RTO or an ISO. Um, I think what it says about savings is that in the in the sort of um, most aggressive case, joining PJM, that South Carolina ratepayers would save about a third of a billion dollars a year. And uh, that is an interesting matchup with North Carolina. W- where there was a study in 2019 that was funded by buyers um, which said that North Carolinians could save two thirds of a billion dollars a year. So the two Carolinas, I I think what Brattle is saying is could be saving a billion dollars a year if North and South Carolina joined together in a competitive wholesale market and and especially in RTO. But the, the study also described energy imbalance markets and other approaches, uh, that were less aggressive than than joining PJM.
0: And Reese, how are how are businesses currently engaging in the topic of market reform in in North Carolina, and and are there efforts from the business community to advocate and advance alternative market structures here in the region?
2: There are, and you know I. Many businesses have been active in advocating for market reform in the in the Carolinas, both states, both independently and through their respective trade associations, like SEBA and Carolinas SEBA. You know, we saw multiple large energy customers uh, support or broach the idea of joining a regional transmission organization at the Utilities Commission, in North Carolina, in the carbon plan proceeding last year. In some of the the filed. Um, comments you know Seba along with some other business associations also filed comments in that proceeding um and have discussed the concept with state deci- decision makers you know just in, in in general and I will say you know I think some businesses as a you know membership organization of energy customers we have a whole spectrum of businesses on different you know at different spots in their energy energy journey if you will And so some are currently educating themselves on, you know, what are the options that I have for energy procurement and coming to that realization of what options do and don't exist in North Carolina. And as more and more companies take on these, you know, energy goals or just realize that as they're growing their business, they need, they have different energy needs or larger energy needs, you know, the realization of those limited options and then the increased competition for the, the clean energy resources that do exist. I think is really going to increase the number of businesses that are are advocating for these market reform options. ultimately, I think the voices of you know energy customers are going to be critical for market reform you know we need well designed and well implemented market structures in North Carolina you know and I think we get there when customers continue voicing their needs their energy needs in the state
0: and and to that point i you know I think businesses are going to be an instrumental voice in in this current conversation around market reform you know right now 86 companies in North Carolina have set a goal of being powered by 100% renewable energy 41 of North Carolina's largest 50 uh, private employers have set renewable energy targets and so you know as we get closer and closer to those target dates they're going to be more eager to figure out, you know, what options are available to them to enable them to hit those targets. And so, business engagement is going to be a really, really important part of this uh, conversation moving forward. So, wrapping up the conversation, you know, I think I, I would be remiss if I, I didn't address a topic I've heard about a number of times over the past six months to a year as we get closer to our 2030 emissions reduction targets here in North Carolina, which is the elephant in the room of transmission. Transmission is going to be really, really important as we deploy more renewable resources onto the grid. And I think it's been identified that this is going to be a challenge moving forward. We've already run into some big transmission roadblocks up to this point in North Carolina. And uh, planning, transmission planning is going to be really, really important moving forward as we deploy more. So in talking about an alternative market structure like an RTO, would, would that help us as a state uh, accelerate the process of transmission deployment, enabling us to hit those 2030 and 2050 goals. I'll start with Chris on this.
1: Yes, it would it would absolutely help being part of a, a wholesale regional market to, <laughs> with our transmission uh, objectives, for the simple reason that 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 is part of why our regional transmission organizations, RTOs exist. And I I think frequently the monopolies pretend that it's some sort of dictatorship. It's not. The RTO is essentially a service company for utilities, and they play a convening role um, in terms of transmission discussion and planning. And you you think about the billions and billions of dollars that are required to upgrade or to build new transmission. And do you, you know? Is it going to be more effective if one state does it one way, and not in consultation with others, or is it going to be more effective and a lot cheaper if six or eight or ten states say, "Okay, let let let's plan it this way, so that we can optimize, have you know better efficiency and lower costs." So that this, I, I think that the absence, uh, our absence from. From an RTO is is really going to it presents a much greater challenge to both cost effective transmission and to to getting the 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 um, gravity uh, sort of the the critical mass of the transmission we need in order to really transmit renewables uh, by twenty thirty and twenty fifty.
0: So overall, what's next? Where does the state of North Carolina go from here moving forward, Reese? I'll start with you on this.
2: Yeah, in the immediate term, and I think we've touched on this, is you know uh, a study of these electricity market reform options would be an important and no regrets first step toward realizing a lot of the benefits we discussed today. You know, South Carolina has taken that step and is kind of discussing what they do as a state, but you know, there is there are some interdependencies between the states as as much as as. Carolinians may not want to uh, admit that sometimes um, between the two states, you know, especially when it comes to the energy energy markets, um, there can be you know some some benefits in moving together towards a larger market structure. You know, Duke Energy already runs a, a bi-state system, and you know, North Carolina I think really needs to move forward with thinking through what works best for North Carolina but you know the you know and Chris talked about kind of how the study has been kind of squashed the past few few years um but that's really just hampering the ability uh to make informed decisions on on how North Carolina moves forward as a state in terms of you know its electricity market but its economic development as we talked about as well so, you know, in the near term, I think, you know, funding and enacting a study of those options is going to be is going to be important. And really, it doesn't predetermine any sort of, you know, action that you have to take. And it actually lends itself towards getting to a well-designed and well-implemented market structure. At the end of the day, I think, you know, North Carolina really needs to begin that process of moving toward the savings and benefits of building that. a uh, more resilient, more streamlined grid. And a large part of that is opening and unlocking the market for competition.
0: Chris, I'm going to, I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball and ask you this question in a different way. Is it going to take a VC Sumner type of project failure in North Carolina to be the impetus for really thinking critically about market structure reform in this state up here in, in North Carolina as a whole?
1: I hope it won't take a VC Sumner uh, level event to, uh, cons- for North Carolina to consider market reform. I really applaud South Carolina uh, political leadership for being willing to look at um, <laughs> options. And I, and I think that is a truly small C conservative uh, thing to do to sort of say, okay, what, what works for us and, and what, what can markets do? But you know they had the benefit of seeing VC summer up close, which was a nine billion dollar white elephant that um, the, the builders knew for years in advance, would never go online, would never pencil out. And, and now South Carolina ratepayers um, and their kids and their grandkids will be paying for that for a long time. We had a North Carolina coal ash spill, which was sort of a similar scope. And uh, and a similar price tag, uh, somewhat smaller. Um, I think that because that was spread out, and in, in a lot of different counties, and because it was kind of seen as an environmental issue, we didn't react the same way. Uh, so it's not something that you know a legislator sees every day when they're driving, you know, to the Capitol, like they might see V.C. Summer and be furious about it. But I hope it won't take a crisis. I I, I think that, you know, I, I do think that while we're, we've been in the Carolinas on a really good run of economic development, I, I think that if there start to be obvious concerns that employers are not getting what they need or their energy is not reliable enough, or especially if it's too expensive... My hope is that that will drive a more reasonable conversation. We, you know, the, the, the utilities have been around for a long time. They will be around. Um, they'll they'll certainly outlive, I think, all of us on this podcast. So we're, we're not talking about eliminating them. But, you know, I think the I think ratepayers will look at all of the rent seeking that the utilities are doing and say, wait a second, um, that's not something that I want to pay for. I may have options to get around that, just like people got rid of landlines, and there are some things that you know monopolies are better at doing than others, and I think we'd be better off if the utilities do, did what monopolies are good at doing, but didn't try to then dominate markets where there's plenty of market power that creates innovation and savings.
0: And. You know, we, we're already seeing the, the utility you know, float options for some really, really expensive projects that I think there are a lot of question marks around the ability to, to bring those projects to fruition, like small modular nuclear reactors and uh, green hydrogen, for example, in the future. right? So uh, I, I have concerns right, that we might walk ourselves into a similar situation in South Carolina, but I hope we don't get to that point, especially given that we have plenty of lower cost options available to us currently right now that are commercially viable as a whole.
1: I'd like to, to I, I I would just say something quickly about small nuclear reactors and advanced nuclear. Carolina's Clean Energy Business Association doesn't have uh, positions on particular technology. And um, I think if you polled our members, most of them by far would think that nuclear is a part of our energy mix in the future. It's a vital part it's providing a lot of carbon free you know generation right now but it is it's a highest cost energy and so i think that we have to be honest about that because monopolies like to bait and switch and they say well reliability and lowest cost but in this case you know even duke projections i think have smrs at 100 dollars a megawatt and you know solar solar plus storage is about a quarter of that price and standalone storage, of course, uh, which can go into very small footprints is, is um, in that you know much smaller range, too. So, you know, in terms of what you're just saying, I hope that the public will think about it this way, that if you got paid based on how much money you spent, you would be really tempted to go out and spend a lot of money, right? And that is, that's the structure we have now. Government-regulated monopolies are rewarded for the more equity they invest, the more expensive stuff they build that takes a long time to pay back, the happier they are, the more money they make, and, and the longer period of time they make it. And, and I think somehow that, that, that incentive has to change, because right now it's a total disincentive to save money for, quote-unquote, customers or, or to innovate.
0: Well, I appreciate both of you so much for joining us on this episode to talk more about what's going on in the region on on market reform. Um, Both of you have great perspectives on this as, as both organizations really in the trenches of these conversations, working with a variety of stakeholders in the industry, large corporations and customers. Uh, And so I know this conversation uh, is not over and not even close to over. So I'm sure we'll probably have both of you back on another episode in the future to talk about any updates specifically related to uh, House Bill 503 uh, and what's going on in South Carolina. So thank you both so much for being here on today's episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thank you.
0: And my key takeaway from today's show is the significant amount of savings that both North and South Carolina ratepayers could see through the transition to a new market structure like an RTO. With potential savings to the degree that Chris and Reese were mentioning, we have an onus to explore these structures to help insulate ratepayers from future rate increases, the likes of which we're already seeing play out via proposals in front of the North Carolina Utilities Commission right now. And if the utilities see the commission weigh in their favor, we could see rates increase to the tune of 30% over the next three or so years. And on that note, you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 92 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the podcast helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy from North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.